Well, here we are. So this is, by my admittedly imperfect maths, episode three yes. of The New Romantics. And so far, we've actually had a bit of a break, haven't we? So we're coming back to it. I'm, so I'm trying to remember what we said in our first two uh, episodes. But I think we talked quite a bit about memory and communication and narrative. And I think we're going to look a little more today at visual representation, sight and insight or introspection. Mm. And I think the two things we've got to talk about complement each other quite nicely in that respect. Should we look at the, the scientific article first, which is by Rebecca Kioch, and I may have pronounced that wrong, and Joel Pearson, and it's quite recent, and it's called The Blind Mind, No Sensory Visual Imagery in Aphantasia. Would you like to introduce it? I was interested in this because I've been getting more and more interested in the relationship between perception, production, doing things in the world, and actually imagery, which is somewhere in between, imagining things that you do. Because one of the things that's becoming clearer over the time since I've been in academia is that actually imagery is quite complex and there's quite a lot of individual variation in this. And... When I was doing my PhD, when somebody talked about imagery, they would, without exception, mean visual imagery. It never meant any other kind of imagery Mm. at all. And I can remember sitting in a meeting. We were having a conversation about... um, We were in a reading group around some new theory of of sort of consciousness. And I became aware that everybody was talking about imagery that meant visual imagery. And actually, I thought... I remember thinking, I don't have that. What? And and as I think of imagery, I think of sound. That's what I have pretty much all the time going on. So... It's, very, it's an interesting paper because it's kind of arguing a couple of quite interesting points about this. First of all, there's been an enduring argument within the world of visual imagery to the extent to which people really do visualise things. Do you see something in your mind that is the same as seeing it in the world? Or is it a kind of description, some propositional representation of the same things that actually isn't fleshed out in that same way? And what they're arguing is actually that difference in the theoretical positions may stem from individual variation in how much people actually experience that sense. So the idea is that within visual imagery, and maybe with other kinds of imagery, there's a big variation, actually, the intensity and the kind of experience that people have. Some people do have something much more fleshed out and, quotes realistic, and other people do have something that's much more sparse and sort of descriptive in a, in a sort of propositional style without having the... The perceptual attributes. Yeah, that's what the article homes in on, isn't it? Because it actually says, uh, my reading of it is that it comes up with a kind of quite surprising conclusion, which is that it's not really that people who say they can't imagine things fail entirely to represent images of the world to themselves visually it's that there's actually some cortical problem going on which means that the image is possibly there in Mm. some way but it's not then secondarily represented to them in whatever process it is that does that yeah i think that's a fair summary it's like an access an ability to engage with that information but they do the really interesting conclusion is that although they can't aphantasics, as they're called, although they can't seem to represent objects to themselves, and normally they're choosing two-dimensional objects as Mm. these sort of patches with red and green on them, and they find that difficult to retain, they can do spatial tasks, 
which are neither clearly they, it's a slippery area isn't yeah. it is it a is it a system of visual representation spatial location in the mind or is it something else assisted by propositional yeah. stuff or semantic stuff and i just found that fascinating yeah. because it seems to me if you were to think of that geometrically and say well i can think of an axis mentally it seems to me that I can't really think of an axis geometrically without also thinking of some object around it. Yeah. So that the space around it becomes an object in itself, whether it's yeah. a globe or it's a square or something else. I hadn't thought of it like that. It seemed... I was less surprised, but then one of the things they suggest, and you're right, because it, is, it isn't obvious until you think about it a bit more, when we think about perception of visual stuff, and certainly also sound in the human brain, it doesn't mean one thing, and there are different networks associated with, in the visual system, the recognition of visual objects that runs down the bottom of the brain, and that seems to be distinctly different from brain areas that are associated with spatial representation of where things are and how you would interact with them. So if you put your hand out to pick up your glass, you will actually anticipate with your hand the shape and the weight of that glass before you pick it up. Now, if you had damage to brain systems that meant you couldn't recognise that that was a glass, you would still do that shaping. Very interesting. Yeah. And you seem to say something there just at the start of that explanation, which was significant, which there's a developmental issue there. So are we saying that that shaping impulse, the orientational, geometric, spatial thing, develops in the brain coevally with visual, or is it before? Does it take... But it, it's still, is it earlier? It's still visual. I think the idea would be that when you are looking around the world and you're interacting with the world in a way that uses vision. So if I pick up an object, I'm using visual information to guide my actions, that that's relying on a different kind of network than the set networks I would use to recognise what the object is that I'm interacting with, maybe name it. Yeah, that they say here, I think, so the where stream yes. is the um, in the parietal lobe and the what stream, you know, the recognition of the glass as the yeah. glass is at the temporal lobe. Exactly, exactly. And we're still trying to work out the developmental characteristics of this have to be profound because these are, you know, most, the brain doesn't work straight out of the box. Every brain no. sees a product of development. There's probably also an older evolutionary history to that. So probably those sort of spatial networks are older than the more recent complicated recognition systems in the temporal lobe, which seem to be, in a very general sense, very general sense, evolutionarily more recent. That makes sense to me because, of course, we know that the, you know, the baby's eyes don't focus straight away and therefore one's sense of oneself as an object in space. I mean, a lot of developmental psychologists, this is the big area in child development, isn't it? At what point does the child distinguish between the external world and them, themselves yeah. as a self? But the thing, presumably part of a very, very important mechanism in assisting that is going to be, you know, sound, touch, smell, echolocation quite early on. And doing things, actually moving in the world. You don't develop the entire sort of muscular control over your body all at once when you're a baby. It goes from face and mouth and breathing and swallowing first and then sort of hands and then last of all feet. 
So when you look at babies exploring the world initially, one of the reasons why they have tremendous choking hazards is because they put everything in their mouths. Yeah. And that's actually how they're finding out about stuff. Yeah. That, is, that is their sensory world. So it kind of maps on from there. Yeah. Same as making sounds. You, you learn about noise in the world. Part of that is by actually making sounds yourself. There's an interesting relationship between the kind of stuff you can know about the world without having to ever do anything. So there are examples of people in the 1970s who'd grown up without any spoken language because they had a brain damage at birth that meant they were tremendous motor problems, given foot typewriters <laughs> that when they were invented in the 70s, and then by the end of the week were kind of writing completely grammatically correct, articulate, written letters to the manufacturers suggesting corrections. You know, So they've been sitting there understanding everything they heard and not able to say any of it because they mm. didn't have the control for it. And other things you do seem to have to be able to act on the world to know about. So again, there seems to be... There's more than one thing going on. When we think about perception, there are different networks. Some seem to run off with different kinds of information. They play a different kind of role, and other ones are really important for, you know, kind of guiding action and actually being in that room. What you're really kind of alluding to there, it seems to me, is the old contest between things that are hardwired and things that have to evolve. Yeah. I'm just thinking when you're mentioning taste there, it's just a slight tangent, but... I suppose partly as a writer, but but also someone who's you know interested in history. I think that the examination of sensory stimuli contains within it or holds this sort of buried history of catastrophe and disaster. So you know, learning about the world through taste, which, as you say, a baby does naturally, and and presupposes that they're essentially being fed mostly things that are palatable, actually, as a human sense has an evolutionary history of of disaster and tasting the wrong things and being poisoned Mm. and dying and finding out that those things aren't good for you and will not make comestible material and can't be ingested. So your sense actually, I'm making a slightly sort of poetic, pointless point, but it, it has depth to it. Yes. It has an extraordinary temporal depth that goes down a very, very, very long way. I suppose what I'm just saying is that we think of the senses and we talk about them rather casually as part of our immediate phenomenology, but they're not. Rather like this, this problem of, of imagining things spatially without them being obvious objects, they move in historical space, Yeah. the senses. One of the things that I got really obsessed with was what was different about mammal brains when they emerged, because reptiles, birds, are very, very good at visual processing. They live in an intensely colourful world, and then mammals evolve in the dark, can't see colour at all. Well, they see colour very differently from reptiles. And smell is the dominant sense for mammals. They've got great big noses. That's the, you know, a lot of their brain is devoted to that. It's not that smell isn't important for reptiles, but it's not as, it's like the world for, for mammals. And then primates come along. Things are slightly different with sea mammals, we can think about that, but primates come along and suddenly sight and sound come back in and much more of the brain's given over to that, much more of the real estate on the face is given over to the mm. eyes and the ears are processing sound quite differently from perhaps other mammals. And we get colour back via that route but we still have this kind of link to taste and smell which were once everything they're still 
important. They're just much less important. They don't dominate. But they seem to have a very, particularly smell, quite a different access to the brain. It's processed differently. It doesn't go through the thalamus. It's processed. It literally just plugs straight into the brain. And it seems to drive, for example, links with memory in a really profound way. It's very interesting. So colour, you're saying, is a kind of... It's more synesthetic, really. It's assisted by these other things that are more primal. I think one of the things is, and I've got to get the argument right, colour is something that your brain constructs about the properties of the stuff in your environment, much much like pitch and sound. It's not one thing that drives it. And in order to have the advantages that colour perception give you, I'm, I'm making this sound incorrect, but one of the benefits that primates get by having this more evolved, more evolved is the wrong phrase, more complicated processing of vision information that gets them back to colour which other reptiles and birds already have and other mammals mostly lost. It's a computed process. It's something that we add together because we can make a Pantone colour chart and sort of map out colours. It doesn't tell you that's not what your brain does to work out what colour is. A lot of very complicated things feed into that. And it's like our experience of colour is something that builds on a more elaborated processing of vision information probably in the same way that pitch works in our brains. So our perception of pitch is something we're constructing over a number of different acoustic cues. And our experience of pitch is a consequence of that. There's not one thing you can point to in the environment that says that's the only thing that gives you a sense of pitch. You're not accessing that information directly. And that that's probably different for other mammals, leaving sea mammals to one side. So dogs, pigs, they process sound and they use sound information, but they're not breaking it down in the same way. So, for example, I know there's a little bit of debate about this with occasionally, but pretty much no other animal cares, well, no other mammal cares about music. Yeah. You know, because yeah. they're not getting that kind of sense from this, effectively the same sound, isn't having that consequence for them perceptually that it does for us. So, a lot of what we think of as quite basic attributes of our perceptual environment actually reflects incredibly complex processing. Very complex. And, and I mean, I think we mentioned this perhaps once before in, a, in, a, in, a, in another conversation, but that complicated dependency in colour and pitch mm. uh, can't be far removed from the task-related variety of the human animal. Mm. You know, yeah. in, that, in that most animals really are doing one thing. But the more sophisticated the animal... And the more complex the range of tasks they do until you get to the primates and they're, they're beginning to sort of so, socialise and their cooperation and there are tribal elements. Yeah. And then once you get to humans, there's obviously the great leap forward, as it were, is specialisation. And that presumably accounts for, you know, the specialisation of colour sensitive that you find in painters. Which is, yes. which is a sort of obvious example. Yeah. Although, even there, that's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because <laughs> some painters aren't that sensitive to colour. They are primarily, what they represent is mm. a geometrical form. And you could make an argument that the, you know, the great, as it were, leap forward from impressionism, which we think of as a sort of colour-soaked field, to cubism and modernism is a leap into the spatial again and to yeah. the breaking up of form. And the kind of integration of movement somehow yeah. and something trying to be dynamic about it. So it's not it's, so it's not the case that just because you have you develop a particular sensitivity to colour or, or you can argue that some people are have a specialisation or special sensitivity, that they actually are more sensitive. Yeah, you don't know that that that's not it's not going to be one thing that's leading to one kind of no. output. 
And I think the general point is very interesting about the sort of appearance of modern humans. Do you remember ages ago we went to that thing at the British Museum about art, modern when modern humans appeared, the things they started making? Yeah. The thing that really blew my mind there was you could kind of spot the appearance of modern humans because you just get this explosion of things. Yeah. They start making things and they want mm. those things in some way to look more nice and more complicated and more different. There was a was a comb with horses built into it, yeah. which was just beautiful. Could have come from any point in human history, but it wasn't just a functional thing. It was a beautiful thing. And yeah. that seems to be, going back to this kind of point about specialisation and flexibility, The it's not enough for humans to... We're not perceiving the world in a complex way. We are ceaselessly trying to change the world around us by then making things driven by that. You know, one one level, it's all a kind of technology because we make stuff that's not just usable, but it's beautiful and it changes. Then we use it for other things, and it kind of it's like an endless cycle of. And you're also things. always trying to add this coming, you know, back to this issue we, we started with. You're always trying to add your mental representation of something, your mental imagery to the artifact, and in that, of course, is the basis for representation of goddesses and you know the, the nature spirits and how we think of the world around us. It's never just an object. It's never just out there. It is that plus yeah. the mental. So when you decorate a comb with horses or when you have a figure, a primitive inverted commas figure of you know, an earth goddess or a fertility symbol, you are saying that there's no such thing as pure function or your drive or sex or that person over there there mm. is the drive there is the person and then there is what they mean yeah there's some to interpretation you. to that yes yeah and that is the world i think if, it's very hard to point to things and say oh this is different about humans you don't find it anywhere else but one of the things that's interesting about humans is one of the things is we like to understand things and name things this is a thing this is the you know this is a cup I, I, that's fall within the category of stuff I would categorise in that world way and obviously it depends on your world and what sort of things you categorise but you can also see it as something else you can be something else you can stand for something else so that classic is it a duck or a rabbit illusion one of the interesting things is you can only see one at any one time but the even more interesting thing is that you can see multiple things and flick between them mm. and that's I wonder if that's that kind of finding meaning and then seeing flexibility in that meaning is the one of the things that's really quite striking about humans. I think that's true, and it's, and it's also true about very, very abstract quantities, because the great leap forward in computing in the 19th century, of course, with Babbage, is that he discovered that even something like number doesn't have to re- refer solely to quantity. Yeah. It could yeah. be something else. Yeah. Yes, it can be an abstract idea that's got mm. these properties, absolutely. Yeah. Can I ask you just another before we leave this this piece? I mean, it's it's very well written, apart from anything else. It's it's rather beautifully written. I thought um, that. Yeah. It's lovely to read a journal article that has the word interestingly in it. You know, <laughs> and, but, and it's and it's not just filler. It really yes, is interesting. Yeah. And you sense that the the people writing it are excited by what they've discovered. There's just one bit that I I was I was sort of a bit confused about and I wondered if you could help me out with it. So they're saying that people who can't uh, represent 
mental images to themselves who can't imagine or say they can't, have got no visual imagination. It's not that there's a lack of metacognition. It's not that there's some break between what's happening at the kind of optic nerve cortical level and then their ability to sort of turn that into meaning. It's actually happening at the sensory level. And I'm just finding that a little bit difficult to unpack because it seems to me that if you say it's happening at the sensory level, it entails a problem with representing whatever it is that happens when we see things to ourselves. This is one of the things I found interesting about this, and I to point to an example of a study we did, we were looking at auditory imagery, and we were deliberately trying to look at individual differences in auditory imagery, like how if I ask you to imagine the tune Happy Birthday played on a piano, how intense on a scale of you know one to seven, where seven is very strong, like it's playing in the room, and one is can't hear that at all, would that experience be for you? And then there's a whole questionnaire that asks lots of that sorts of questions. Can you imagine the sound of a cricket bat hitting a cricket ball, that kind of thing? What, when we just had got a load of brains of people we'd given this questionnaire to, and just looked for brain areas that were larger, the more intensely people had auditory mm. imagery, it wasn't in auditory cortex at all. It was in motor parts of the brain. And that seemed to me to make a lot of sense because it was it, you're thinking about the sound by thinking about how you would make that sound, I suspect. And I sometimes wonder if that might not also be possibly at least part of what's happening with the visual stuff. How much is it to do with a, like a photographic representation or how much of it to do with be actually here is a thing that I am manipulating and I am in, I'm doing that I'm then seeing the actions of. I'm on. embodied. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So the auditory stuff seems to... You can't have a photo of a sound. Sounds only happen because something's happened in the world. So maybe you can't have auditory imagery without... That kind of without, without acoustic, really. So yeah. some sort of, yeah. you know, the, the, the machine for making the sound has to be part yeah. of what you imagine. And maybe that's not the case with visual stuff. Maybe that varies depending on what you're actually imagining. But it did make me think, it, it certainly we didn't find any evidence that it was at all engaging sensory parts of the brain. So there may be a more complex pattern behind this. It may not, because as you say, if it was just, sen- if it was something happening sensorily, you would imagine that there would be perceptual problems as well. Yeah, Why exactly. wouldn't there be? Why wouldn't yeah. there be? But it's fascinating, and it's and as I say, it's, uh, I can <laughs> we commend it to our Ooh. listeners. It's called the blind mind, no sensory visual imagery in a fantasia. It's a beautiful paper. It's a really nice paper. So we're going to come to this story by Saki, which is the thing I've chosen, called The Lumber Room, which apart from anything else is very funny. But I thought we might come to it just via something else that I would sort of introduce left of field, which I think has some bearing on, you know, the blind mind, what we've been talking about and, and how we represent things to ourselves, which is Milton, famous case of the blind poet, 17th century, who writes this great ambitious English epic called Paradise Lost, which is his attempt to justify the ways of God to men, as he says, but it's also an attempt to justify his republican fervour and the, you know, the, the civil war. And I wanted to ask, I'm not assuming that you read Paradise Lost, <laughs> don't worry, there's no questions on that. But Rising back. But it's a fantastic poem, it's extremely exciting, mm. and it is saturated with 
very, very peculiar compensatory sensory detail. I think in part because God is ineffable, and there's that whole contest in religion which just goes through all the denominations about how far we're able to represent the ineffable, you yeah. know, how, how far it's the, it's the right thing to do without turning him into an idol. And it's also partly to do with Milton's blindness, which is that he is utterly dependent upon mental representation and the other senses that aren't visual. Yeah. So the book is it's saturated with a strange combination of very, very irradiated colour field when the devil flies across the abyss in book two he flies through these sort of pillars of purple flame and it's not quite solid it's not air it's not water Milton says you know he should have a sail or he should have oars in order Mm. to get through it it's not certain what the element is it's very frightening and it's extremely beautiful and then he comes across a figure called chaos who sits on as a primeval god who antedates both God and the devil. And he sits on this massive sort of throne of, of nebulous purple fire. Fast forward to Eden when he comes to the world that God has created. And we find that Eden is just full of luscious fruits and growth and smells mm. and wonderful remembered foliage. And the great scene of the fall, as Adam experiences it, is him making this beautiful garland for Eve. And when she bites the apple in another part of the garden, the the garland just sort of withers in his Mm. hand and it just just drops to the ground. It's terribly touching and moving. But actually a lot of the stuff in Eden is really about them eating. It's about taste, making, you know, when the archangel comes to sort of tick them off, they make him dinner. It's a very beautiful story about... The paradise that is the seen world being lost and rediscovered. It's about many other things as well, but that seems to me part of it that is not sufficiently looked at. Mm. My question after that long, rather boring evocation of it is, what was Milton using? Mm. Is his system of imaginary representation of the garden and food and smells and sights and clouds and the void... What's it produced by? Is it primarily from a remembered visual capacity? And then is that supplemented by his extraordinary kind of verbal gift? Yeah. Or is it also, I mean, obviously it is partly that, but is it also something new that's very difficult to put your finger on? Yeah. Which is the experience of no longer having those things. Yeah, and what that starts to mean to you. I can't give you a very good answer Frequently in neuroscience, we ask these questions about sort of how when things change or if you grow up with an altered visual or auditory experience, how is your brain different? And we used to think, for example, if you lost a, so if you lost a hand, that the brain areas around that, the, the brain that controls that hand, kind of invaded it and took it over and you've got this kind of recompensation. I can't find the answer to that on Apple Watch. Now you see, this, I'm, that's my that's silly though. Um, Auditory silly. simulation. It's right. Um, my colleague here, Tamar Makin, she's found that actually, even in people who've lost limbs, you don't lose that representation. If you think about that hand, try and move that hand that's no longer there, 
that same bit of brain's activated. Mm. It hasn't been overwhelmed in the same way. And what you don't know is what does that mean? How what other kind of is it exactly the same? And that's the thing. I think I'm saying, yeah. yeah, is it, is it is the it, same or has it has it shifted? In some and way? I suspect that there may be some kind of because it's not just it's not just that you have a thing and then you don't have that thing anymore. Like the sense of loss and access to that perceptual information, even if you still have the the memories and the, you can call to mind what these things would be. Those are still going to be tinged by or strongly affected by the emotional meaning is what I'm saying. So you could imagine both elements are there. There could be some compensation. There's almost certainly a lot of retained information and there's a whole new layer of of meaning that comes about through something being different. Yeah. You know that. And also being different oneself, actually now being blind and, and in some way cut off from the community of the seeing. Which does lead us on to this really interesting, I think on a number of levels, story by Saki, who is you know, one of those one-word authors whose real name was Hector Hugh Monroe, who died in the First World War in 1916. I think he was in his mid-40s when he died. And he wrote a lot of extremely funny, um, very macabre as well, short stories. He's one of those writers where the work... The oeuvre keeps sort of cycling back into fashion over years. You know, he disappears for a bit, and then he comes back again. Mm. He's found by people like Roald Dahl. There wouldn't have been Roald Dahl without Saki. That's yeah. why, you know. And indeed, arguably, there wouldn't have been Noel Coward without yeah. Saki. Very, very funny, short, pithy. And although they're really all about, appear to be about social observation, so this is about a young boy staying with his aunt. We don't know whether he's lost his parents. or it's, it's just he's there with his... It's not his aunt, actually. He's with his cousins. And the aunt is the cousin's aunt. And he... <laughs> it starts... <laughs> it starts with him putting a frog in his bowl of bread and milk. And he says, you know, there's a frog in my bread and milk. And the aunt says, don't be so ridiculous. But, of course, he's put it there himself. And there's this lovely thing where he says... The dramatic part of the incident was that there really was a frog in Nicholas's basin of bread and milk. He'd put it there himself, so he felt entitled to know something about it. The sin of taking a frog from the garden and putting it into a bowl of wholesome bread and milk was enlarged on at great length. But the fact that stood out clearest in the whole affair as it presented itself to the mind of Nicholas was that the older, wiser and better people had been proved to be profoundly in error in matters about which they'd expressed the utmost assurance. It's actually about verbal evidence... Yes. And what's really happened. Yeah. And there's always this level to Saki's stories, which is psychologically so fascinating, because as it develops, it turns out that this is a, one of the, his very, very clever children who has got an ulterior motive for doing the things he does. So he wants the aunt then to believe... She invents an expedition to punish Nicholas for mm. putting a frog in the bread and milk. And the expedition is to take the other two children to Jagborough Sands. But he doesn't want to go anyway. He doesn't want to join in. He is quite happy to stay at home, so he doesn't feel he's been punished at all. The aunt thinks that he's going to try and get into the gooseberry garden. He is content for her to think that that's <laughs> what he wants to do, because what he really wants to do is get into the lumber room. And there he does this weird thing, where he looks at that painting... What did you What did you make of the whole thing? It's a sort of. I absolutely loved it. It took me a couple of goes to get into it. I didn't know how to read it. I'm not a very skilled reader, and I was. I tend to skip things. Oh, what's going on here? You know, hang on. There's a frog. No, I need to go back to the start here. What? <laughs> you know? But I, 
I got a kind of sh- a, f- a couple of points in this, a real kind of shock of familiarity in that the accuracy with which a kind of child's perspective on what they want to do and, and when what they find interesting when they get to do what they want to do can be so so very much at odds with what adults think children will want to do and where they might go. And when he gets completely caught up by the fate of the hunter, the situation, and what else is going on, and he just keeps going back to it. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful, and just sort of some seeing like a whole world of a story and quite, and a couple quite a sinister story. Oh, they're all sinister. Yeah, yeah they're all quite sinister. Like when the aunt falls into the yeah, train yeah. track, I thought, oh, hang on, where are they going with this? <laughs> is she going to make it to the end? You know? It's terribly like, funny though. <laughs> so the aunt, the aunt is convinced that he's escaped into the gooseberry garden, and she goes in to sort of retrieve him. But of course, he's upstairs, and he hears her fall into the rain tank. And then he sort of goes out to her and still not in the garden himself on the other side of the wall. And she says, she says, fetch the ladder to, you know, help me out. And he says, I've been told not to go into the gooseberry garden. And she says, I told you you couldn't and now you can. He says, I think you are the evil one. And she says, this is a lovely end of the thing where there's a great sort of... Your voice doesn't sound like aunt, subjected Nicholas. You may be the evil one tempting me to be disobedient. Aunt often tells me that the evil one tempts me and that I always yield. This time I'm not going to yield. Don't talk nonsense, said the prisoner in the tank. Go and fetch the ladder. Will there be strawberry jam for tea? asked Nicholas innocently. Certainly there will be, said the aunt, privately resolving that Nicholas should have none of it. Now I know that you are the evil one and not aunt, shouted Nicholas gleefully. When we asked aunt for strawberry jam yesterday, she said there wasn't any. I know there are four jars of it in the store cupboard because I looked. And of course, you know it's there, but she doesn't because she said there wasn't any. Oh, devil, you have sold yourself. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and it's lovely that he doesn't push it too far. You know, he no. sort of draws back. That's it. And the, the story's over pretty quickly. It's only three pages. Yeah. And they're all, they're all quick like that. The whole thing is about... You know, and the reason I think it links quite nicely with the blind mind idea is that it's about, at a serious level, though it's very funny in the dialogue, it's about his inner world. Yeah. And it's about the way his inner world is so much more important to him and so much more satisfying than the outer one. Mm. You know, the the gooseberry garden is out there. It may have gooseberries in it, but... You know, it's part of being treated like a child, that that's what he's supposed to be interested in. In fact, he wants to go into the internal part of the house, i.e. his mind. He wants to go into the lumber room to see what's there. Mm. So it's a retreat and a discovery. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Saki was homosexual at this time, after the, the wild trials, after various scandals. This is about someone who is content to watch and to watch internally the way things change and doesn't necessarily want to act in the world because to act is to contravene stupid law. There's danger. There's danger. And it's stupid danger. It's not true authority. So it's quite a critical and I think quite an advanced uh, and perhaps not fully conscious exploration of you know, a developing gay mind. Yeah. At least that's how I read it. I mean, without without being too political with a, with a big P about it, I think it, it, it's... Nicholas has a secret. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the secret is that he's not who his aunt thinks he is. Yeah. He's got this other thing he wants to do that the general perception of children doesn't allow for. And he wants also, he's interested in this huntsman in the painting. And the huntsman, he's kind of, he's in a tight corner. He's a male, he's an attractive, athletic male figure who's in a tight corner because he's about to be devoured by wolves. Yeah. And the huntsman is, is, I think, another sort of slightly Snow Whitey figure, uh, you know, who's been he's been given a task in the picture to be a huntsman, but it looks like it's going to fall apart. It looks like he's going to be killed. That was quite striking because it wasn't just that he got caught up in the story on the tapestry. It was exactly that what the story is, and that he's sufficiently interested in the man and worried about the man that he's trying to come up with a way that the story could end that would be all right. Yes. And that's it's a quite a complex emotional intensity there, which isn't... I'm not saying children don't get that, it couldn't happen, but it's, it's, I think you're right. I think that is feeding into kind of a, a fear for somebody and trying to find a way that the story could be end well for them. And how can you turn your secret that you have into a powerful thing? Yeah. How can it be something that works for you and for others? Yes. In other words, how can it as close out the story, yeah. bring it yeah. to conclusion? Yeah. How, how can it operate safely in the world and productively? You know, that, that, that crops up a lot in, you know, in, in Greek stories and Greek myth. How can these sexually irresponsible, labile figures have an effect in the world that ends up, being, ends up restoring balance? Mm. You know, it's a sort of thing that comes up again and again in myth. Myth is very important to Saki's literary world. And a lot of the macabre stories have roots in Anglo-Saxon myth and sort of green man figures and so on. So it's an extraordinary world. But like all interesting writers, it's sort of a one-off, um, although you can, you can point to various sources. Uh, myth is one. I think Victorian poetry, Browning is another and you can see other people who are highly influenced by Saki, like Sylvia Townsend Warner, in the 20s and 30s and subsequently. So one other thing that struck me about this is that there was this big sort of contest in the 19th century in the kinds of kinds of different kinds of masculinity were you an athlete or were you an aesthete the gay man the idea of the homosexual comes about really with the wild trials in 1894 and homosexuals are sort of by definition they're aesthetes they don't live in the practical world they're not athletes they're you know they are these if effeminate, effeminized mm. people. What's interesting about Nicholas here is that he's really neither one nor the other. Yeah. He's a person who does, who acts proactively to take himself away from the world, and he's interested in aesthetics, this tapestry, this picture. Mm. He loves objects, candlesticks. He's a sort of antiquarian. He's rather mm. like a sort of gay antiquarian. But at the same time, he is a clever manipulator of events. Yeah. He's a proper actor in the story in the way that the aunt isn't. And the people who go to run about on the sands turn out to be useless at it and have a terrible time. Yes. So he's sort of, 
he's he's retrieving a kind of status i think for people who don't appear to do anything yeah but just like pictures and art and and sort of lavender smelling handkerchiefs and part of that is yes it's the internal world that it is it's not just fancy it's something much more active than that yeah it is a yeah. way of, it's this come it's a way of being embodied no, it was beautiful. I really enjoyed it. It made me want to go and read more. So there we are. The internal world, imagery, and many other things besides. I think that's a natural conclusion. Feels like a very good end. Otherwise, we're probably... The only other thing I'm doing at the moment is starting to cry about Brexit, so it's probably time yeah. to stop that <laughs> Maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> Wait for that, folks. On the, other side, on the other side of this podcast will be Brexit itself, probably, so... Watch and wait. So, Will, just I can't let you go without asking you one more thing, which is how has you be, you said that you were recording the audio book for Murmur? Yes. Can you tell me more about that? So that has happened now, and I think it will be out quite soon. Yes. So it did it over two days a couple of weeks ago. I, I have to say it was the most enjoyable two days' work I've had in years. I just really loved it. Partly because, of course, you know, if you've written it yourself, you feel you've got a bit of control over it. Yeah. But also, I, I just liked the it's the interesting thing of being in a room just with a microphone and a producer, and it's just you and sound. Yeah. And you can sort of fill the room out. I it was I found it I really enjoyed it. So it should be available. I think I don't know a few weeks time. Can people find it on things like Audible? Or? It will be. Yeah, it'll be available on all those things. Yeah. So we've been the New Romantics, and thank you very much, Will. Thank you, Sophie. Bye. Bye.